Well, if you will, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And before we read God's Word this morning, uh, one last announcement that I, I did men- mean to mention is in your bulletin, you will see some envelopes and a brochure for the International Mission Board Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um, this time of year in the Southern Baptist Convention is when we will focus on uh, giving a little bit back and a little bit extra to the work of international missions around the world. The Southern Baptist Convention does very well in organizing and financing missions and missionaries around the world. And at Christmas time, there is an extra offering, a special offering that you can give an above and beyond your, two, uh, your regular tithes and offering. Uh, and all of that money, 100%, goes to support missionaries around the world. Uh, last year, this church gave $5,000 toward that. Um, I don't have a dollar figure for what a goal would be, um, but those envelopes are there for you. Uh, you can drop those in the offering each Sunday, um, and we will tally those and give those, all that money directly to missions. Uh, we are a Southern Baptist church for a reason, because we love missions. And the International Mission Board, I think, does a very, very good job in supporting their missionaries around the world, and it comes directly from us. Now, does that mean that we write a check and forget the missionaries? No. If you look in that brochure, one story that I saw that was really compelling, and many Baptist churches are beginning to do this more and more, there was a Baptist church in Tennessee, a small church for about 100, that decided they were going to fund fully this, uh, the financial needs for one missionary couple for a year. $90,000 is what it takes to support someone on the mission field for a year. $90,000. Okay? That's not just a salary. That's like all of their expenses, right? That means like if you're running a church, there's expenses. That $90,000 covers everything they need to run whatever mission that they are called to do. This one church in Tennessee supported one missionary family with $90,000 for an offering. I'm not saying we can do that. I mean, if you want to do that, I, I, you know, I would say let the Lord, let the Holy Spirit talk to you, and you just follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I think as a church, we are generous people. I've, I've seen some generosity coming from everybody here. And if you do have a little bit of extra this year to give toward missions, that's what this offering is for. Amen. Amen. Again, turn with me to Acts chapter six, beginning in verse one. If you can stand as we read God's word. Now, in in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And right now in these weeks, as we are looking at how your scripture tells us to order, order the church and organize the operations of your gospel ministry. Today, Lord, we look at this text so that we can understand the move of your Holy Spirit in establishing a hierarchy of responsibilities amongst the leadership of the church and the ministry to those in need. There's a reason here, Father, that this is part of your word. And I pray, God, that you would teach us as a church what it is that you have done through your word and through this true account of your church. As we seek to be a biblical church modeled after your structure, Father God, teach us through this passage what it means to serve as your people. Let this time be for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Please have a seat. As we have been finishing up the sermons from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5 led us into understanding what an elder was in the church. And last week we looked at that more in depth in the book of Titus. This week I want us to look at the next phase in the established order of leadership in a church, not to try to elevate anyone, particularly myself, but it's important for a church to understand biblically how God wants things to be ordered. Last week in the book of Titus, we see that Paul charges Titus to establish elders amongst the churches there on the island of Crete. And these elders were called to be overseers of the churches to teach the gospel correctly to a people that had a reputation for being liars and cheats. <laughs> okay, that was the reputation of the island of Crete. So it was important to have men there to teach the truth of the gospel and to shape the lives of the people there. We now turn to Acts chapter 6, and we see in God's structure of the early days of the church that there was a problem. The early church in Jerusalem was growing fast. And we see that what happened in Acts chapter 6 after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. 3,000 plus were added to the church in one day. Now wouldn't that be a great day for Sovereign Grace Baptist Church to have 3,000 people show up here on one day and the Holy Spirit just move amongst all of them? I, I, I think you would just have to haul me off on a, on a gurney and, and because I'd have a heart attack. And I'd say, what in the world is happening, right? But one of the things that we did see in 1 Peter chapter 5 was that the role of the overseers and the elders was to help guide the lives in the spiritual direction of the people. And what we see in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 is that the church was spread throughout all of the Roman Empire in what is called the Diaspora. You see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 
Peter is writing to the diaspora, those who have been spread throughout the Roman Empire. When that happens, then suddenly you have people of the Jewish tradition who are now Christians spread into other areas of the, of the world, and you have culture clash. That's part of what was going on in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. We see here in Acts chapter 6 a further, a further issue here amongst the clashes of culture. And God teaching the people and teaching the church and the leaders of the church how to deal with that. And the result of that was the establishment of an ordination for an office called the deacon. And let's understand what that means today. Look here in verse 1. Speaking about now in these days, this was the, 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 the days and the months following the day of Pentecost. As the church was growing in Jerusalem, what happens here when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here's what's happening. Suddenly, whenever you get a group of people together, and especially as, as the church is growing and more and more people are coming into the body of Christ, you automatically have a diversity of people from different backgrounds, different economic situations, different language traditions, even different scriptural traditions coming into the church. We have here in verse 1, we have two different groups being uh, described here. We have the Hellenists and we have the Hebrews. And there was a complaint that rose up. Here's, let's understand who these people were. Clearly, the Hebrews were those who were of the traditional Jewish tradition, who had come into the church. They were good, upstanding Jewish followers of the law. They read the Hebrew scriptures, and they come into the church, and now they're Christians. But they were, I mean, their scripture was the Old Testament Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic like good Palestinians should. They perhaps even spoke Hebrew if they were really, really educated because Hebrew wasn't the common language anymore. Hebrew at this point had become kind of like the holy language. If you could read, if you could read the Hebrew scriptures and you could uh, actually speak Hebrew, you were, you were better than even the Hebrews. Okay. So there was this element here of the pure race of the Hebrew culture coming into the church. The second group of people here we have mentioned are the Hellenists. Now, who were they? They were clearly coming into the church as well. But the idea here of the Hellenists, this is a term that is referred to those of Greek culture. Now, were these Hellenists raised in the Greek pagan tradition and then come into the church? Perhaps a few, but majority of the Hellenists were actually Jewish people who were spread in the diaspora around the Roman and the Greek-speaking world. They were Jewish, but they were raised, born and raised and lived in foreign cultures in the world, no, no, normal world of the time. And they would come home to Jerusalem from time to time to stay connected with their Jewish roots. And probably what has happened here, these Hellenists were probably around and present on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his sermon in chapter 2. And they come into the church from the result of the move of the Holy Spirit. And so now you have a mix of many different cultures here. 
the Hellenists were those Jews who really weren't pure enough and they weren't, they weren't Jewish enough for those elite Jewish people. They were Jews by perhaps blood, but they were not Jew by culture. They had brought with them the Greek influence from where they lived, where their homes were outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel, and they had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to worship. And through the move of the Holy Spirit, they were brought into the church. This is the origin of many of these Hellenists. These Hellenistic Jews were of the diaspora, like I said, of what Peter wrote in First and Second Peter. They were not native Palestinians. They did not grow up there. Greek was their native language, not Hebrew, not Aramaic. They read the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew Scriptures. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And they read the Septuagint. Well, they didn't even... You know, don't we have that same issue today? You either read the King James or you don't. Right? See, the Hebrews said, no, we've got God's words here in the Hebrew. We've got the original language here. And these Hellenists come in and they they didn't even know how to read the Hebrew or the Aramaic. They read the Septuagint. Paul himself would have used the Septuagint. One of the things here that, if you want a little Bible trivia here, whenever somebody asks you in the New Testament, when the Old Testament is quoted in Paul's letters, or even Peter's letters, why is it that the translation of the Old Testament doesn't match up with the translation of the same passage in the New Testament? Right? When, when, they're, when they're quoting the Psalms or they're quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, how come the two translations from the New Testament to the Old Testament don't match up? It's real simple. The Old Testament is translated directly from the Hebrew. The New Testament is translated from the Greek. And most likely, Paul and Peter were quoting the Septuagint. So even then, there was a conflict of translations. You think it's a new thing in in Christian cultures in America. It's nothing new. We even got it going on here. See, there's been a conflict with how we should do things in the church from the very beginning. See, many of these Hellenists would have been in Jerusalem again on the Passover and the day of Pentecost, and they come into the church. But when they come into the church, they were clearly seen as the minority. Oh, that's just those Hellenists. We'll just let them sit on the back row. Right? What has happened here in the first days of the church is that the church shared everything. We see that in the book of Acts. It was very clear. The Christians of the, of the Jerusalem church in the very first days of the organization of the church, they shared their wealth. They shared their daily bread with each other. It was if you were a Christian in the church, you came together and there was a daily distribution of food for those who had need. It wasn't that, it, it wasn't that some people were, were bossy and needy and great. It was just there was a genuine need. And everybody shared what they had. If you had a little, you shared what you could. If you had a lot, you shared more. And everyone was taken care of for bread, for physical needs. There was a daily distribution. And what was happening here is clearly that the, the, the Hellenist Jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the gifts to the church body. The Hellenists, being the minority, were clearly ignored. Now, in some way you could say there was some clear bias going on here, sure. But then at the same time, if you're the minority group in the, in the church, 
you could understand why some who were traditionally Hebrew probably just didn't even pay attention to them. Now, it wasn't right, but that's what was going on. So what happens here in verse 1 and 2 is that the apostles, these were just the twelve here. At this point, we still had the twelve apostles in charge. But this idea of the disciples means all of the church body, everyone coming into the church were disciples. And at this point, you had the established twelve in verse 2. And the twelve, speaking about Jesus' twelve, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, the full number of the disciples means they brought everybody together. If you're in the church, if the Lord has brought you into the church body in Jerusalem, we're going to gather everybody here. We're going to figure out what's going on. And here's what they said. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now here is where the rubber meets the road. Some may actually look at verse 2 and say, well, the disciples felt that they, or the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles at this point, perhaps they felt that they were better than everybody else. Oh, we can't be bothered with dealing with this. Now, if you read it, read it that way, then you're going to misunderstand exactly what's happening here. So let's understand what the Holy Spirit is doing in this crisis and how God receives glory here. Because here's the thing in verse 2. If the apostles, if the twelve apostles were so high and mighty and arrogant that they could not see themselves stooping to serve food to the widows and the orphans, clearly the Holy Spirit's not in this. So there must be another understanding here of what they're talking about. The idea here of serving tables is actually the idea that gives us the word deacon itself. The Greek word diakonoia is actually the word that means to serve tables, to distribute food at a table. It means to actually serve. Now, the idea of the table here has two meanings, right? The idea of the table, the table can clearly be used for food, right? Where, where do we eat our meals? Hopefully we ate at the table. You know, when I was a bachelor back in the day, uh, I used to stand at the kitchen sink and just eat out of the can. Right? Got some men who have done that? Yeah, I, I think some poor college students have done that from time to time, right? right you, just, uh, you just get the can, open up the top, put the can on the stove, and heat it up right there in the can, stand there over the sink and eat. Right? But, but you know, disciplined people and, and people of culture sit at a table. Right? So the table is, is, is the place for food. A second meaning here for the table is also, especially at this time, would be the table where uh, somebody who was the treasurer would count the money. We think about Matthew, the disciple, being called by Jesus. What was it? He was a tax collector, and he was sitting at the table there when Jesus walks by. So the idea of the table here has two meanings. The, the twelve do not want to be uh, do not want to give up the important role that they have of prayer and preaching and teaching of the word in order to sit at a table and distribute the benevolence to the people. That doesn't mean that serving of benevolence is, is a bad idea or somehow less than. That's what we need to make sure we don't misunderstand. Because what we see here in this text is that the joy of serving at the table is something that is being established as a place of honor in the church. These twelve apostles were suddenly overwhelmed with such a growth of membership in the church 
They couldn't do it all. They were called by Jesus Christ Himself to preach the gospel and to establish the kingdom of God on heaven, on earth. That was their calling. But folks, we as human beings have needs. We have spiritual needs and we have physical needs. Amen? You neglect one or the other, things aren't going to go very well. Now clearly we can imagine if we miss a meal or two, we're going to feel it. Right? When our physical needs are not met, we know it. And what happens when our physical needs are not met? How do we react? Anybody here get grouchy when they don't get their physical needs met? Or is that term hangry? I like that, new, that term that's really popular right now. You're not hungry, you're hangry. You're angry when you don't have anything to eat, right? But same thing, think about this. Same thing with a good place to sleep, right? We need, a, we need a safe home to live in. We need clothes on our back. We need shelter over our head. We have physical needs. At the same time, though, we are spiritual creatures. We are made by God with a soul. We have spiritual needs just as well as physical needs. What we have going on here is suddenly a clash of these two needs. And twelve men, twelve apostles, cannot take care of thousands properly. So here's what they're saying in verse 2. It is not right for the twelve apostles to abandon the very important and necessary spiritual nourishment of the people and be so consumed with the physical needs of their people that they cannot do anything else. So here's what they do in verse 3. Now notice these men, these twelve, they don't really just come out and say, well, here was our plan all along. It's interesting here how the Holy Spirit is working. Because in verse 3, the the twelve now, uh, they, they basically give... The, the conclusion or the, the, the solution to the problem to the people. Therefore, brothers, they say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. They call together all of the disciples and they tell them in verse 3, you pick out from yourself seven men. And they give descriptions on who these men need to be. See, so now if the twelve had done this before the need had arisen, They would have come across as, well, I am too important to take care of you. I'm going to establish these people to deal with your petty little problems. Had they done this from the very beginning of the church, there might have been an argument for that arrogance. But because they don't propose the deacon office until after the need arises, that then establishes the importance of the role of the apostle or the overseer or the elder. Now they're saying here, now we need another office, those who will serve the tables, the diakonoia, the deacons. Look here in verse 3. Let's understand exactly what the office of deacon looks like here. What, there are prerequisites. Look here in verse 3. The prerequisites here for the seven men, you must find seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, They must live a godly life. That is the first prerequisite. Anyone who is called to the office of deacon must already exhibit a godly life. You just don't 
run out there with a, a lottery and just say, okay, let's pull out names out of a hat and figure out who the deacons are going to be. Number one, those who are called to this duty of serving the tables are those who probably were doing it already. They were probably already serving the people and they already had a reputation amongst the people of being men of good repute, men of good character, men of good reputation amongst the church. They were godly men already. The second prerequisite is that they would have to have a strong knowledge of God's Word. They would have to live a godly life, but the only way to live a godly life, folks, is to actually have some knowledge of the Scriptures. And so these men would have had to have both requirements here, already doing the work before being appointed to the office of deacon. Because that's what it says here in verse 3. Number one, they, they, they said, okay, you the church body, you the disciples, you pick out from amongst yourselves seven people that you trust. And then the, elder, then the apostles will appoint them. Another word there would be they would ordain them into this office. So what we're seeing here in this passage is the biblical mandate and the biblical principles of ordination, which is a godly calling and responsibility in his church. These deacons, as they are appointed to this office, here's what they will do. The office of the deacon addresses practical matters, right? So what we're already seeing here is a a distribution of even the, the leadership responsibilities of the apostles and the deacons. The apostles will take the very important spiritual needs of the people upon themselves. The deacons will take the very important physical needs of the people amongst themselves. Right? We have physical needs, we have spiritual needs. The office of the deacon addresses directly the practical matters, the practical physical needs, and the attention within the community of Christ. The deacon's role is to serve the physical, practical needs of the widows, of the orphans, of the poor, anyone who is in need of physical help, whatever that is. That's the role of the deacon. They are to manage what is going on there with those needs. They're to manage it. Because remember, the idea of the table here is twofold. You have a table for food, and you have a table for counting money. So whenever the church here was collecting the shared wealth amongst the church body, there would be money set aside for benevolence. Everyone shared the wealth. They shared their food. They shared their money. They possibly even shared their homes with anyone who needed a place to live. The deacons here were going to be be tasked with, they managed that table. They manage the table of the monies coming in. They manage the table of the food going out. They determine who had need and how best to serve that need. So the deacon's job here is first and foremost to manage the needs of the people. They would organize the distribution of the monies that came in and they would organize the distribution of the food that would go out and feed the poor. Think about this. Has anybody ever served or worked into in a food pantry? Has anybody ever done that? I don't know about you, but if you go to a food pantry, there's always somebody there. They manage that food pantry. And buddy, you don't pick up a can of beans without them knowing you picked up the can of beans. Amen? Now, some people would say that's mean. 
But I think we see, uh, we see evidence here in Scripture. God says, do all things in order. We require someone to manage the benevolence. You just don't take in God's uh, donation. You don't take in the donations to God's kingdom. You don't take in the distribution of funds and just willy-nilly toss it out there for the world to have. God says, in this situation, we're going to call seven men and ordain them to this very important ministry. They will determine what the needs are. They will determine how to solve those needs physically. See, but here's the thing. When the deacons were not dealing with the practical ministry, when those times that when the deacons were not distributing the food and not distributing the wealth, because think about this. If your full-time job in the church is to manage the monies and to manage the benevolence. That's a lot of needs out there. But if there's that much needs, then what you run into, you're going to run into a lot of people who are just coming to the church for the money. So clearly, there were going to be times here, in the wisdom of the deacons and in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, those true needs were taken care of. There were going to be times where the deacons would also assist the apostles in the teaching of the Scriptures. So the deacons here, traditionally, they would be dealing with the practical needs, but when those needs were met, the rest of their time, they were assistants to the elders and the apostles in teaching and preaching. So it's one thing for a deacon to be dealing with the physical needs of the people, but the deacon will also be helping with the spiritual needs. The the elders and the apostles, that is their primary and sole purpose, to study, to pray, to teach, to encourage, to inspire. The deacons would assist the elders and the apostles in that ministry. That's the biblical precedent we see here. So what do we do now? Look here in verse 4. The apostles say in verse 4, once you among you the disciples, you the church body, once you choose seven men, we will appoint them in verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Basically what the apostles conclude here is you serve the tables and we will serve the word. So you see a, a, a very important establishment here of responsibilities that God ordained through this situation. The Holy Spirit allows this to happen. The Holy Spirit calls the men. The Holy Spirit directs the the choosing of the seven men through the people. And now the apostles can focus on what they need to focus on while the deacons take care of what they need to focus on. And really what you see here is a partnership. It's not a hierarchy of who is better than another. Really what you see here is that the apostles are finally finding some helpers. The deacons are assistants. They are not slaves. They are not employees. They are not less than the apostles. The apostles were primarily concerned with prayer. That's what it says in verse 4. We will dedicate ourselves to prayer, and we will dedicate ourselves to ministry of the Word, which means preaching and teaching to the people. And in that teaching and preaching, if they needed assistance, deacons, I need you to take that small group Bible study. (laughs) 
We've got 3,000 plus people and they're coming by the droves and we're going to grow to 10,000 real quickly. We need to organize and establish perhaps smaller groups of people gathering for worship and prayer and Bible study. The deacons probably took over a lot of that responsibility. And the apostles would come and teach as necessary. So there was a partnership, a hierarchy of order that was necessary. Now here's a very interesting thing in verse 5. These seven men that were chosen by the disciples, uh, and when we say the disciples, we mean these seven men chosen by the church body as a whole. The disciples means everybody. That means you. You're a disciple. Here's what we see here in verse 5. We see the names of these seven. And I want you to notice something very important here about these seven. And when they, and here's what verse 5 says. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Do you notice something about those seven names? Those are Greek names. It is very likely, we see the indication here in this list of names, that the Hellenists, the Greek Christians, chose seven of their own. The indicator here is that no longer would there be any charge of neglect because of racial bias or cultural bias. These seven men come up out of the ranks of those who were in the most need. Now, here's the other thing. This was what also is important about this fact that they were of Greek tradition, of Greek culture. If the Hellenists were seen as somehow less than the Hebrew people, how much better would it be to elevate to a place of honor those that most people saw as less than? Isn't that an amazing thing, what the Holy Spirit has done here? They have taken those that were ridiculed and ignored by the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians, and they said, you know what? You've ignored them. We're going to raise them up into a place of honor and prestige in the church. And how do we know that they were of honor and prestige? Number one, because the apostles laid hands upon them In verse 6, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. That is a sign of, of passing on a place of responsibility and confirmation to the next leaders. Jesus did this with his 12. Jesus would lay his hands upon his 12 apostles and commission them into the ministry of establishing the church. These 12 apostles are now doing the same thing that Jesus did for these seven, they laid hands upon them, elevated them into a place of prosper, uh, into a place of honor and, and prominence. See these twelve. The, the action of the twelve apostles, by giving the decision to the people, made them happy. The entire congregation, both the Greeks and the Hebrews, both the Hellenists and the Jews, they all were compl- they they were no longer complaining. The complaint had been resolved. Now, if you, anyone here has been in churches for any length of time, do, do, do grumblings and complainings happen in the church? That happens. You get people together, it's going to happen. I mean, if you, if you live in a family at home, 
Don't you all have grumblings and murmurings in the house? Absolutely. It's going to happen. You've got different opinions. You've got different personalities. You've got different needs. You've got different desires. And it's all going to come into this hodgepodge of a mix. And only through the love of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit can we ever find a harmony and a balance. This right here, this text, this passage shows us how wonderful the church can get along. Even in the midst of, of, of trouble and, and strife and complaining, there's always a solution. And that solution comes through prayer, through being open and honest and discussing the problem, and then being willing to accept the solution. Notice here, even, even those, the, the Jewish Christians, those who were of the elite snobbery, they were even happy with this solution. And that right there is evidence that the Holy Spirit directed every bit of it. Now look at these seven men again. We're going to close with this. Why are these seven men important? Clearly they were important because the, they, were, they were the first ones to be prayed over and ordained as deacons in the church. But look here. What do we know about Stephen? Stephen is martyred in chapter 7 following this chapter. We know about the martyrdom of Stephen. What do we know about Philip? Philip here, he takes the gospel to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 and he's the one who baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Now, we don't know much about the rest of the list here. We don't know much about Prochorus or Nicanor or Timon or any of these others. We, now, th- th- there are some commentaries over church history and scholarship that thinks that Nicholas of Antioch uh, fell into a group of heretics, uh, that, but some scholars disagree with that. They, they may say that may be a similar name here based on the church tradition. They... There's no evidence in this text that this Nicholas falls into heresy later. We don't know much about them, but here's what we do know. That Prochorus, is from church tradition, was actually probably connected with John the Apostle and served in his ministry until he died. Again, we don't know much about the rest of them, but here's the thing. These men are listed by name in Scripture because they had God's favor, They had the favor of the people and they served the church with honor. That's the role of the deacon. Now what's the result here of what happened here in verse 7? After this conflict was resolved in a godly, Christ-like manner, that became a witness to everyone else in the community. And the Word of God, verse 7 says, And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, order of ministry brings order to the increase of the church. But you see, there's an important biblical precedent here for structure and order. But in that structure and order, we have harmony. You notice how everybody agreed with the solution. It made sense to them. There was a strife, there was a problem, there was some complaining, but the complaining did not continue after the solution was established. 
We don't get any indication in the Scriptures here that when this was resolved, that there was another committee that, st- that formed behind the scenes in, in private, and they sent out a letter-writing campaign to everybody in the church to get rid of the apostles. We don't see that. We see harmony. So as we move forward as a church, I am praying for a structure of elders, and when the right time comes, a structure of deacons. Now, how do we do this? Number one, we look for those who are already doing the work. If they're going to be an elder, we need to see that they are godly men who are teachers, who are prayers. They spend time in prayer and before the Lord so that they can encourage and nourish the spirit of everyone here. What does a deacon look like? Somebody who is already serving. But at the same time, the deacon doesn't just serve physically. The deacon from time to time will be called on to teach. Now, there's a, there's a tradition in, in many of these old backcountry mountain churches where back in the day, the deacon was responsible to show up at the church early enough on Sunday morning to light the wood stove so that when the church showed up, the church wasn't cold. That's a deacon. When a widow needed food, it was the deacon who distributed the benevolence to them. Now, does this mean that the elder pastor never serves the physical needs of the people? If we take that conclusion here, I think we've misunderstood the text. The apostles here are not saying we will never bow so low as to serve the physical needs of the people. No, they want their priority to be prayer and teaching of the Word. But we see often in the New Testament the apostles were serving the physical needs of their people all the time. The apostle Paul, what does he do? He goes out and makes tents so he's not a burden on his people. And he's working with them. And he's serving them. But he's also teaching them. And he's praying for them. So, yes, in our context, the pastor can be seen as the elder I'm not saying that the pastor is an apostle. That's a totally different sermon, and that's a totally different discussion. But the pastor-elder idea is that the primary focus is to pray and to teach. We then raise up men to serve the needs of the people. Guess where that comes from? That comes from you. Even the position of elder and teacher still needs to be agreed upon by the congregation, by the people. This idea that the elders can do whatever they want and they can appoint whoever they want without the contribution of the people of the church, I think is a false road to go down. It's a dangerous road to go down. Now, does that mean that we have a congregational vote on every decision? No. I don't think that the church here in the first, uh, in, the, in Acts chapter 6 in the first century voted on every decision. The apostles made a lot of decisions. But the congregation is still important in deciding and agreeing upon the solution. Father God, we thank you for your word again. By giving us example of what it means to be an ordered church. I pray, dear God, that you would begin to work in our church body in this area. 
that we would raise up those who would take responsibility for certain things in the church. Somebody to be in charge of perhaps making sure the building is ready. Someone else to be in charge of making sure that the funds are distributed well. Someone else to perhaps, Lord, make sure that the children are taught well. The benevolent needs of our community, the benevolent needs within our church is very important. And I pray, dear God, that you would call those people that you, dear God, wish to serve in that role. Bless us, God, in all that we try to do for your kingdom. If we try to do it in our own power, God, humble us. If we are in your will, bless us. But dear God, I pray that your spirit would teach us. It is because of this, Lord, that we worship your Son, Jesus Christ. He has He's died for us, not so that we would be a chaotic group of people, but that we would be ordered as, dear God, you are in order, and that we would represent your kingdom well. Teach us how to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.